0: That's networkorg 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: HRN is now on Kitch, the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. Go to KITCH.com and find HRN in the channel's listing.
2: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at herstranch.com.
3: Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasten, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling, where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. I fall in love with some chefs. It's not hard to do. But Josh Lewin of Juliet in Somerville and Peregrine in the Back Bay is special to me. I've been privileged to watch him grow and prosper from bistro cook to executive chef, to pop-up entrepreneur, to an award winning chef owner whose idea of the purpose of a restaurant is as much about social equity for the staff as it is about excellence in the food. We recorded this conversation in late winter of 2022 when the new, improved, and enlarged Juliet was getting ready to open. First, let's hear the unusual backstory of how Josh Lewin got his cooking chops. Josh, when I first met you, you were 22 maybe, not even. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe you think you weren't a teenager, but you sure seemed like a teenager to me. <laughs> Thank and you. you were doing the most incredible food, and people had yet to find out about you. Maybe you had yet to find out about you. So I'd love to know a little bit about how you grew up, and how you found your way to where you are now. I know it's an interesting story.
4: (laughs) I guess you could say I grew up working in the restaurant, which is how you came to meet me so young in a career that was beginning, because I had been doing it for, I guess, six or eight years by the time that we met. I was in my early 20s at that time. So I grew up in the restaurants. I needed to go to work, both to keep myself busy. I wasn't particularly fond of going to school so I would often go to work instead of going to school and that meant restaurants by the time I was in probably 10th grade that's what teenagers do small independent restaurants sometimes operate a little bit outside the regulations that's how somebody 14 15 years old comes to be washing dishes when they should be in secondary school that's not a thing that can happen pretty much anywhere except for in restaurants Whether that's a good thing or not is a subject of another podcast, but that's how I got started. I was probably 14 and thinking about saving for a car, right? Uh, which took a couple years of washing dishes to do. So that's I looked for an opportunity. It was either on roofs, mowing lawns, which I had done in the past, or something different indoors with a paycheck. I guess it was still cash at that point, but that meant restaurants. So I dove in and got started. Plus my parents had met in a restaurant, which was a story I was familiar with. I guess I met me, in school. Tell
3: me about your parents, because when I met you, A, you'd already been in the military, I think, mm-hmm. which surprised me. And the first time I had a sense that your life was complex was at a chef's collaborative conference when you said, oh, will you take this picture of me and my mom? <laughs> I haven't seen her in about 10 years. And yeah. I was like, well, that's a story.
4: <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I forgot that happened. I grew up in a mixed family. I was raised by an aunt and an uncle through my early years, my mother's sister and her husband. And then my like high school years with my father and his second wife and a blended family that included five children of whom I'm the oldest, two of whom are stepsisters. I don't know what to say about that, except that it's great. I love the variety of experience that I've had even just as in a family. And One of the common elements through a changing family when you're young is food and discovery. So we grew up with an aunt and an uncle after spending a few years with our parents and then changed primary residence back to living with a father, but now with a new wife from a different region and throughout all of this learning about food. So as the holidays are changing, as the families are changing and families are mixing and blending, the food was always different and the food was always comfortable as you're getting used to a new set of grandparents, a new set of aunts and uncles, birthdays in one house or or another house and the traditions are changing around the dinner table, but so is all this conversation, all this mannerisms and social dynamics of the family and Mm -hmm. what certain family members accept and other, not just family members, but other families. You go to your sister's birthday at one family and your birthday a month later at a different family and everything's different, right? That's very complicated for someone who's between 10 and 16 years old. I'm the oldest. So for my brothers and sisters, even younger, more complicated, less complicated, I don't know. But the thing that was comfortable always was the food. So I would often find myself in the kitchen helping usually the grandmothers or the aunts um, in these cases. That's how I got to know my family as my family was changing. It was how I remembered my mother 10 years before you took that photo. We used to cook together on the weekends when I would see my mother. It's an uncomfortable situation for a young child to be living with your aunt instead of your mother and trying to make sense of of how that happens. Mm that's the mental part of it. Then there's the practical stuff for a kid trying to keep up with school, pack a bag and like be in two places at once. Where are you going to wake up that day? You're going to have your, your school books, your notebooks, all that. But the thing that was comfortable was cooking. And my mother liked to cook. She's been a restaurant cook. My father had been a restaurant cook. And that's something that we would do together. Then I would forget my notebook, be late to school and then be at some other aunt's house and like, oh, all that stress. But where it could be comfortable was, oh, what are you cooking?
3: I'm familiar with that. My sneakers are at dad's house and today is soccer. I mean, It changes everything yeah. when you're 10. Oops. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> um, how did you decide that you were going to go into the Army?
4: Marine Corps, actually. And I was a reservist. Um, so... I worked in restaurants alongside that career, but now we're talking about 20 years ago. Well, I told you I had to go to work when I was a teenager, which meant I needed money, right? And the way that Americans wind up in in the military is men in nice uniforms and nice cars show up at your high school and tell you that it's a good idea to go there. That's what happened to me. I passed my high school years very easily. I didn't go into military straight out of high school. I tried college twice two and a half times before I made that choice and I couldn't do it. I remembered that these guys came in and they told me, oh, you're smart, a smart person. You can have any job you want in the military and we'll pay you $20,000 to join up. I said, well, I just wasted all this money failing out of college two and a half times. I don't know what my career is going to be. I guess it's going to be washing dishes. Maybe I should try this thing instead. And that's how I wound up there. Why the Marine Corps? Because we have this American exceptionalism that is multiplied a hundred times by the United States Marine Corps' uh, self-reflective exceptionalism or something like that. So when you're 20, all that sounds like really great in addition to the money. So that's how I wound up doing that. And that's how I wound up 20 years later having people my age. What is it like to be in a country where this is, could be part of your life, uh, where it's so different here that um, the public institutions actually allow the recruiting for going to war to happen in our public schools for people that need the economic means?
3: Good idea, bad idea.
4: I think it's a terrible idea. People weren't in the position to need to worry about their economic situation when they're 17 to 20 years old. The idea wouldn't even make any sense.
3: It is true that all over the world and all through human history, all that testosterone running through young men, they get called and they can get wound up and enthused and waltz off to war and be cannon fodder.
4: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure.
3: In the the Marine Corps, did you get to do any cooking or you were-
4: A little bit, but more just for fun. (laughs) I was an infantry Marine and I cooked for my friends, but I I was not a cook in the Marine Corps.
3: (laughs) So then you, you came out and at this point, you sort of had some homegrown experience working as a cook, but how'd you get your chops?
4: I got lucky. This is the most important part of the story of how this job or this life became a career. I didn't know that this could be a career without school. I knew that it could always be a job. I have also managed restaurants. I've been a bartender Throughout this time, I've worked in basically every position in the restaurant up until shortly before you met me. And then I'm fully committed to the kitchen until I become a business owner. I didn't have any opportunity, really. There was no degree coming for me. I saw the people who were chefs was a culinary degree holding individual or somebody that had certain types of experience. After my career had started, I managed to have the time and the resources to do the, we call it the stage period for would-be chefs where you have to basically work for free. It's fallen a little bit out of favor, but it's not completely disappeared. But at this time it was the only way. And it really leads to a lack of diversity in the top positions in the kitchen, because if you don't have the resources to go to school, To receive a degree that only pays a very low wage and then also be expected to continue learning by working for free, that really shuts off who can access those kind of opportunities. I was shut off from that kind of opportunity, Mm. but I got lucky with Jason Bond at Beacon Hill Bistro, who gave me a chance really before I had the experience on paper or in my hands that would have allowed me to be working in that type of restaurant. Him taking a chance on me really changed how I would hire in the future in two ways. One I got lucky. And so, my biggest goal with the company is to take what was luck for me and turn it into a system of access. Then, the realization also that because I could learn this, other people can learn this too. So, that two sides of the same coin we hire anybody, and we're systemizing once you're hired. How do we make sure that if you want a career, we can help you build one? Two things that happened by chance for me.
3: What do you think Jason saw in you?
4: Honestly. I think he really just needed to hire somebody. I I don't say that to say that he was without forethought or without good intention in hiring me, but I think that it really was for me at that moment, the right place at the right time. It wasn't so much that he was hiring me to give me a chance. It was the way he taught that gave me the chance. So he could have hired anybody. He would have hired anybody. He hired me um, at the right moment that I really needed somebody that was going to teach like he did and open up opportunities.
3: He's such a gentleman. He really is. Yeah. Such a talent. And so what do you remember feeling like it was your first success working there? Where you say, I got this.
4: Oh, it took a while. It took a while. So I worked for Jason for a while. I don't remember how long. And then he went to open his own restaurant. I didn't have much success while Jason was there. I had learning opportunities, lots and lots of learning opportunities while Jason was there. And then he announced he was leaving and it was a long process. It was like the training wheels came off when Jason left. And then I was learning on my own. With Jason, I was learning kind of side by side. Somebody was making sure that I was going to be successful. All of a sudden, I was a little bit more on my own because I didn't have the context of this person, uh, this person who was also willing to work 60, 70 or more hours to make sure that someone was successful. I learned so much that way. I had been through the hand-holding phase, been through the failure of the training wheels came off phase. And then a new chef I was working for, zero context together another time. But now myself, I had the context to roll with that dynamic situation. And finally, I was experiencing some success. I ended up replacing that person when they moved on into that role.
3: So were you scared at that point?
4: Through this whole process, I was scared of losing a job for years, actually. This was What year are we talking, Louisa? We're talking about 2009. This process begins for me. I was paid in the low 20,000s of dollars. All of my meals were at the restaurant. I wasn't saving any money. I was barely paying my rent and I was feeling underqualified for the job I had. So on the one hand, I was digging an economic hole, which is common in restaurants, especially in the back of the house. I was afraid every day that, well, if I lose this, what else is there? There's only dishwashing. That's a little bit of an exaggeration because I could cook anywhere, but was there going to be a career? And I really needed there to be one, both psychologically and financially. So they actually offered me the job. And I said, no, no, there's absolutely no way I'm ready. They said, yeah, we know that, but you've been here for a number of years. You have so much context. And I said, yes, but I'm also 24 years old. I've barely begun to learn what this job is. And I think one of the smartest things I ever did uh, in my career was to say no to that job at that point and to have another year of learning before I was expected to do it on my own. They really believed in me in that moment, and I might have been successful for them, they being the owners of Beacon Hill Bistro. I may have been successful for them in their version of what success meant in that place at that time, but I wouldn't have built a career without saying no to that opportunity at that moment. Almost all the advice I received from friends was to not say no. Was to, you know, like, This is your chance. You don't say no to an opportunity. You don't say no to your chance. You may not get another one. Probably mostly out of well-placed fear. I said no to that and then was able to step into that role about a year later and experience quite a bit of success.
3: I remember. And the food was great. Then it, that came to an end. Why did that come to an end?
4: Because we were starting our company, Katrina and I. We
3: and you met uh, Katrina at Beacon Hill Bistro, or were you just as she was? No, through a
4: friend. Katrina had moved here from California. The opposite of me, Katrina has a lot of education, but her early career post-graduating from the University of California at Santa Cruz Was spent in kind of incubator entrepreneurship and incubator type Mm -hmm. companies, especially with a social impact focus of various types. So, not necessarily restaurants, but her parents have a restaurant origin story as well. Food is a big part of Katrina's life, but social impact um, and community studies are her education and her direction. Working in food was because I had to pay for things. I now have 20 four years of experience working in restaurants, almost ready to retire. And Katrina comes to restaurants because she loves them, but with an experience in how to build community and impact change through for-profit business, but multi-stakeholder approaches. So we meet in 2000 something, 11, 12, uh, and start having conversations about her education, um, ideas that I had had about the restaurant business, but had no idea how to handle them in vocabulary that made any sense. (laughs) I just had thoughts about how people should experience their work, how they should be able to build careers, how they should be paid for their work. But I didn't really know what any of that meant in business. That was just an ideal. I was starting to develop the feeling that I had experienced some luck and that it would be worthwhile to try to examine how that luck happened and if it could be systemized in any way for other people enter the scene, Katrina, who has experience building companies that have community and social impact.
3: We'll be back in a moment to talk about how Josh and his partner, Katrina Jaziri, decided to turn the restaurant business model on its head as they opened their Union Square restaurant, Juliet. You'll want to listen.
1: HRN is excited to announce that we've launched our channel on Kitsch, the new food-centric live streaming video platform for interviews, cooking classes, and more. In April, in collaboration with Kitsch and the Mushroom Council, we're celebrating Earth Month with delicious, nutritious, and sustainable mushroom recipes. Check out the latest videos on our channel to see Eat Your Heartland Out host Capri Kafaro, Jupiter's Almanac host Matthew Rayford, and Item 13 host Yoram Aku, Aku Aku moderate recipe demos with chefs Jeremy Fox and Ali Rosen. Join us at KITTCH.com to become part of the first live streaming community for the food obsessed.
2: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com.
3: And we are back with Josh Lewin
4: enter the scene, Katrina, who has experience building companies that have community and social impact. I'm telling her how restaurants work inside and out, and she's getting what she was always curious about. I'm getting what I needed from transforming my ideals into something that can be written into a business plan. And we start playing around with throwing some events, but we're both working other jobs at the time. Katrina's doing what any new young person to a city does and gets a job at a restaurant while she figures things out. We spent some of our downtime together planning events as like pilots for what could be a business, but we didn't really have any specific plans. We just had curiosity, but people started coming and then the same people started coming and then people started asking us when we might make a restaurant. And we said, oh, kind of casual conversations about business that we've been having and about restaurants, this could actually become a restaurant. And that's how uh, we decided to quit our jobs, me first, her later. I quit first because we went on to open in the Wink and Nod space, that incubator kitchen space. So in that space, we only were responsible for the food. So I ran that. She supported administratively, but I ran it actively. And then when we finished that incubator period, she quit her job as well to focus on building a full service restaurant of our own.
3: So that was like a pop-up and you would do that for a couple of months at a time. And anybody who loved you would have to get themselves organized to come in during that particular part of time, right. it was probably a very good incubator for you to try out dishes and also for you and Katrina to figure out what it was like for the two of you to work together.
4: Yeah, it was interesting. We had completed like true pop-ups. Where you pop up and you're gone. We had done that probably a dozen times. We had done it in three different cities. And that was really fun. We had a lot of experience with that. With the Wink and Not Opportunity, we developed this new vocabulary. We called it a temporary restaurant. It's a restaurant where the delivery driver knows where to come right? There's some insurance that's held by the owner of the company. There's payroll checks that are written, but it has an expiration date, right? You don't put an expiration date on a restaurant. That would be crazy financial choice, but the temporary restaurant has an expiration date. Our whole development is how to take structures that make sense and then manipulate them in a very independent way so that we have more control over their choices. So we have a temporary restaurant for the first time, but we're responsible to the people that own this bar. No problem. It's a great opportunity for us, but we pivot out of that. We're able to do another temporary restaurant, but this time keeping our business ideals a little bit closer. And from that is how we wrote the business plan and and opened Juliet with no expiration date about a year later.
3: And I want to talk about Juliet because there was nothing about what you did at Juliet that made any sense to me to begin with. (laughs) Nothing. I, I would go in there and I would say... It's great. The food is great here. There's nothing about this that makes sense to me as a business. And yet it has been and it was and I was wrong. But not for the last time and not for the first. How did you and Katrina evolve? I know husbands and wives and I know partners that work together. And I know all sorts of people who work together. But it is challenging. (laughs) How was that?
4: It can be impossible, but we're aligned in in the ideals of the mission of what we're doing. We couldn't work together in a different environment, except that we're working toward a very meaningful and very common goal. So the two of us aren't going to work together down the street at some fancy restaurant because we love working for that person's vision, Mm -hmm. right? That would be an impossible situation. That would be silly. But what we do here is work towards something that each of us has something to offer the other and what our kind of life mission was before we met each other. I would say that on Juliet, um, you're probably more right than you realize,
3: <laughs> <laughs> which we can get into if you want. Well, I'm, I'm we're in a very have- transparent
4: phase at Juliet. <laughs> Juliet so, um, take Tell me about curtain.
3: that. So, just for people who don't know, the concept behind Juliet was
4: <laughs> well, we opened up in a in a former coffee shop, which was 900 square feet. Which, for those who don't have the context, is three to four times smaller than your average small restaurant. That 900 square feet includes the size of an average one to two bedroom apartment, right? But this includes all the kitchen, all the office.
3: Yeah, a small one to two bedroom.
4: Like you walk into your favorite neighborhood restaurant and maybe it looks that small too, but what you're not seeing is all the storage, all the cooking, all the office, all the infrastructure that's included in the size of our space. That's point number one. It shouldn't have worked as a business. It was way too small. It didn't have the infrastructure. It's six years old and we're actually moving it in about a month right next door. And there's a reason for that. We pushed that little space much further than it ever should have been pushed. We opened without a liquor license. That's another thing that small independent restaurants aren't supposed to be able to survive, but we had to get people at work. We opened to create jobs and we got some bad advice from the city. It was our first time out doing this. We knew for our second time how to actually secure a liquor license properly, but we were told the wrong thing. Somebody else got the license that had been promised to us and we had to wait. So we opened. We opened serving only breakfast and we called it long lunch at the time. We were (laughs) open from seven to seven. But what we became known for was a tasting menu dinner. So things evolved a lot in that first year. We had 16 seats to start about two years in. Katrina closed us for a week and built banquets instead of chairs, which allowed us to increase from 16 to 26 seats by giving us some more flexibility in the seating with the same space. And Breakfast and long lunch doesn't pay the rent for a space that only has 16 seats. We developed this style of having dinner where you're having a five to nine course meal in a place that we painted ourselves that doesn't have any tablecloths, where the chairs are wobbly, where there's no hood system, so it smells like whatever's cooking there's no service station and the service station is where you hide the cleaning. So people are polishing your glasses and your silverware in a way that makes them appear to your table magically. And we didn't have a dish washing room. So you're watching the individuals wash the dishes, but we asked you to pay $150 for dinner. Normally when you pay $150 for dinner, you expect to be pampered. Like you have servants in your home and that's fine. That's what you're paying for, but we can't So we created the idea of this entire thing. You wouldn't be paying for elegance necessarily or fancy elegance. We believe that there's a different kind of elegance too, which is an attitude of of care. But you're going to watch us wash the dishes. You're going to hear us do the cooking. You're going to smell us do the cooking. And then we're just going to show you who we are. So the show became about how we create careers, how we create training, and how we creatively function for our own fulfillment. Because it's not just ideals. It's also fun and creativity and, and technique. And that's how dinner as a show became a thing at Juliet.
3: So the show, when you say the show, you mean the absolutely elemental aspects of cooking and serving food for people who are sitting there watching you cook. It was either very brave or colossally stupid, but (laughs) it it turned out to be a thing. I believe it's both. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that is all right. <laughs> it probably is. Most things that I do are both. So then here you are, and it succeeded all these years. Yeah. It became your launch pad for so many things. What was the first award that Juliet won?
4: Oh, geez. Well, we woke up one day, and the pastry cook at the time had texted us. We were just named one of Bon Appetit's best new restaurants in the country. And
3: with your 16 seats four. Yeah,
4: 16 seats. And we weren't <laughs> serving dinner yet. We didn't have the liquor license yet. That was wild. Not only was our first award, but it was an opportunity for us to really interrogate our place in the community and our platform that we suddenly had. Seems like a silly thing maybe, but that award was called the best new restaurants in America. And every single one of those restaurants was from the United States of America. And half of our staff was not. So immediately uh, with our first award, it also gave us the opportunity to examine what we do with that, which is not just posted on the website, but actually use it to create conversation and create community. So the first award was both a surprise, an exciting surprise and an opportunity to engage with our team and our community, which became a big part of what we do couple of other awards came that year and that year closed with being named the restaurant of the year by Eater Boston. So it was two, two big awards, bookending something that we never meant to be like that. What was interesting is Katrina and I both came from, if not fine dining, elevated dining would be the term. So people were expecting something like that from us, but we didn't do that. We opened a place to serve sandwiches so that people could get paid and to figure it out. But they kept coming, expecting something more. We tried to do something As simple as possible, just to create a job. But we found ourselves explaining too many times that it was so simple. We said, well, they're not accepting this. We have to do something a little bit different. How are we going to do it in this space? How are we going to do it in a way that's fun for us? And how are we going to pay the rent? And we made it work.
3: And you did some very unusual things about like tipping and everything else as well. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Okay. So why are we going to have a restaurant? There's a restaurant everywhere. We work in restaurants. We have restaurants. We have jobs in restaurants. So now we're going to do our own restaurant. I was to cook. I was at the Beacon Hill Bistro making a good paycheck for the first time in my life and cooking whatever I wanted to cook. So why change that? The reason that we came up with was to create careers and to create equity and health at all career levels. Mm -hmm. So our first step was nobody relies on tips. So what for context, for those listening, if they don't know, when people are paid Primarily in tips, the business typically pays them a much lower wage than is minimum wage. I think it's $9 now in Massachusetts, but at this time it was less than Mm -hmm. Um,
3: $5.472 or something. Yeah.
4: Yeah. That's kind of weird, right? And in fine dining and busy urban restaurants, people who are earning $4 an hour from their employer can make uh, great income in tips, but that's actually a small subsection of people who are working for tips are those who are so lucky to have a job like that. So our first step was to eliminate that sub wage. And we did that by eliminating tipping altogether. Now we're a six year old business as of last month, and this has changed a lot. So we started paying everybody a single wage scale, which was barely above minimum wage minimum wage at the time was $11 an hour. We're a new business. We had spent almost all of our money getting it open, um, and we budgeted what we could budget. But over the years, we built a system where our company minimum wage is now $16 an hour, which means that everybody, whether they're a line cook or a bartender or a dishwasher, has the same minimum wage of $16 an hour to start. Then they have the opportunity for wage increases through training, and they also receive hourly incentives. Massachusetts and New York are the only two states remaining in the country where tips cannot be shared among the staff. They can only be paid to the direct service staff. So we collect an administrative fee, which we distribute to staff members who are not legally allowed to receive tips. And we have an optional tip available. So people will leave a tip mm-hmm. that is shared with the, with the service staff. Um, so we've gone from a company that paid everybody the full minimum wage to a company that has a living wage as our minimum wage above the state mm-hmm. and well above the federal standard and no ceiling on income through incentives generated through optional tipping and the administrative fee. So what happens usually is the administrative fee changes. In theory, it's 15% right now. What happens is people receive information that everybody's paid a full wage, a full living wage. They receive information that they will pay 15% on top of their check. They're used to paying 20% to tip, right? Um, 18 to 20% or more. Most people take that into account and we receive a little bit more in tips that get spread out to the service staff. So what ends up happening is functionally, everybody's earning $20 an hour or more, and we're building a business that works.
3: I've been thinking as you've been talking that After this conversation, I know an awful lot about the social justice, social equity part of running this restaurant, and still, if I didn't know you, I would know nothing about the food, Mm -hmm. which is interesting in terms of how you're balancing what your sense of mission is. What you didn't say is that everything has to be sustainable, which that doesn't mean it isn't, but it's just interesting where you put your emphasis. And you must have very low turnover as a result because your team is exceptionally committed to you.
4: Even through the pandemic, we... Had very low turnover. But our second restaurant is Peregrine. It opened up nine months before the pandemic closures. What um, great so timing,
3: Josh! Yeah, right,
4: uh, right. Uh, really a, a test of of what's possible. No, but your your point is interesting. So I do, I do very little cooking. I just finished a stint at Peregrine as being its interim chef de cuisine, and just yesterday I actually promoted Peregrine's second chef de cuisine, Gideon Travis, um, who's been working at Peregrine for two and a half years. He was actually our first employee of that restaurant. He was working at Julie Juliette while we were wrapping up, getting Peregrine up and running and came to us as a line cook with limited experience, but a lot of potential and became the sous chef last summer. I could tell you all about the food in these restaurants, but to get the real story, you'll have to talk to somebody else, uh, which is important because it's what my career has become. So I love to cook. I did it for 20 years cooking is how I survived when I was trying to figure out what my life was going to become. And I really like it. The creative roots of my cooking are in place at the restaurants, but they're being evolved by somebody else in both cases now. It's my job to make sure that they have access to what they need to build their careers. Actually, my biggest project of this year, while my chefs are doing their work, is to strengthen the career ladder for our staff that doesn't speak English. I mentioned that I had recently spent a month in Argentina to do two things. One, to immerse myself in a country that is speaking Spanish and to improve my Spanish that way, to develop a relationship with a school there. we're now offering, we're in a pilot program with just a few staff members, but we will be offering um, free English language classes for anybody on staff who would like to take them, which is great, I think. But I think more importantly, we will be requiring of all of our leadership positions, managers and chefs to complete at least a basic level of conversational Spanish. I think working on this from both ends is very important. We're not just putting the responsibility on somebody who's here as an immigrant to learn the language, which I obviously recommend that they do for their own benefit, if not Mm -hmm. mine, but to actually create and strengthen their ability to improve quickly at work by making sure that those who are in charge of them have at least basic conversational skills as well, where they're not just on their own to figure out how to get better in the host language, but the host is actually reaching out to them conversationally as well. I'm here for my chefs, I'm here for my managers, and I'm here for everybody in the company. But my biggest project of this year is to strengthen our ability to take that luck that I first talked about. A 37-year-old white man from New England who had kind of a strange upbringing, but always had the support I needed and certainly the language skills I needed to make things work. I got lucky. Our first goal as a company was to transfer that luck to those that we could reach. Those people tend to look a little bit like me, although we had uh, really great successes in creating spaces and career spaces for women, but most of those were white women and English-speaking men and women. What we're looking to change this year, opening that up beyond the barriers of language, uh, and we'll see what we do next. We can't fix everything at once, but half of our staff or more are not primary English speakers, and I would like to see the face of our leadership change to reflect those demographics. And it is changing. We have our first two non primary English speaking leadership roles in the company. One is a leadership training role that we call service captain, and one is a sous chef role.
3: Amazing, Josh. Really amazing. You have become someone with not just cooking chops, but with great sort of social gravitas. And I admire you greatly. Tell me Thank about you. the new Juliet. It opens soon. What will I see there? Will I walk in and say, this is ridiculous? Or <laughs>
4: <laughs> No, the original Juliet was a project, a place to test social ideas, a place to make it work th- through whatever means necessary. When we first went to investors with an idea for a business, investors saw Josh, that young chef from downtown who figured things out. And Katrina, transplant from California, quickly rose through the ranks of managing one of the busiest restaurants in Cambridge, won a 30 under 30 award from Zagat. And we came to the investors with this package, right? Josh and Katrina, awards and downtown and uh, story. And we said, but we want to raise our labor costs to 45% and we want everybody to earn $20 an hour. And they said, why? (laughs) I thought you wanted to build a business. And we said, okay, that route's not going to work. And that's how little Juliet came to be in a project who said, okay, if we're ever going to have investors in the future, we need to be able to prove on paper that something like this works. And in order to do that, we need to get open with our own money. We need to reduce the budget for opening immensely and we need to control our own risk. Let's do something smaller. We have to also prove it to ourselves. It's fair for a for-profit investor to want to earn a profit. So Juliet became a place to prove that. And we did prove that. That is part of why it's so strange. We were just in there trying things to to figure out what would work. We didn't know at first. We didn't open a business, a restaurant. Usually you say this is a a Roman restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, with How these do I describe influences. It? Yeah. I used to describe
3: and, it as a place where they made really good eggs.
4: <laughs> oh great. So anyway, uh, fast forward to now. Juliet will be a little bit more standard. We're gonna our r- original show, the first show that opened at Juliet was a Niçoise inspired menu. Uh, so we're gonna take that menu, and that will become. The always available Juliet, the new Juliet, will be a little bit Nicoise all the time. We'll have menu staples that you can count on, come back for your favorites, bring your family and count on these things to always be there, which was never true of the Juliet of the past. Its design will be a little bit more restaurante and not just DIY. The contractors built the banquettes, not Katrina. Katrina did a wonderful job, but we let the professionals do that one. But we'll be retaining some of that kind of independent spirit in the design um, but while giving the community something that's a little bit more standard and a little bit more consistent just in terms of what you will find there
3: well this has just been great josh and i just um i feel a certain kind of personal pride in you because it's been just such an an honor to watch you spiral ever upwards
4: before I was at Beacon Hill Bistro, I was writing to you the freelance article ideas at the Phoenix. I don't know if you even remember I that. I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a name yet. So I've, I've followed you too. And I love you, your, I don't know say penchant type for finding the different story in the obvious, which I've always appreciated. I love what you've done since and just um, giving us an opportunity to talk about things that not everybody wants to talk about. So I've always enjoyed being a part of what you're working
3: Thank for. you. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go and go not be the chef.
4: <laughs> yes, I'll figure out what it is I have to do today. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. Thank I, you. I, I'm Thank always
3: you. there with advice. It's useless to yeah. most people, but <laughs> anyhow, see you soon. Okay. Yes, I hope so. Thank
4: you, Thank you Mike. Okay. Thank you, Louisa.
3: Bye. Thank you, Josh. We can't wait to try out the new space. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage.